Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Taylor, I've been saying, you know, just, you know, during this pandemic, thank goodness for the smart and hardworking people in the biotechnology industry and the pharmaceutical yeah. industry that delivered these vaccines so quickly to the world. I mean, boy, they really did their job. And then, of course, the, the global supply chain trying trying to get those vaccinations out across the globe. But the, one of the questions is, OK, how about the biotech and pharma industry post pandemic? How do we think about that? Well, Nina Decca, she joins us. She's a senior research analyst for Robo Global. Nina, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, boy, the biotech and the pharma industry, they get a lot of heat from some people, generally speaking, high drug prices, things like that. But boy, they really delivered during the pandemic. As an investor, how do you think about that space in a post-pandemic world? Hi, yeah, and thanks for having me on the show today. Um, uh, you, I mean, you bring up some great points with Moderna, the fact that they were able to so quickly bring a therapy uh, through um, the clinical trial process and, and into human beings within a year is, is really unprecedented. And uh, one thing I will say up front is that when you look at the investment opportunity, uh, it's not what Moderna did last year that makes them a strong investment. It's what they've been doing for the last decade. They built a platform uh, ready to go. They, they accumulated massive amounts of data through their technology and AI capabilities over the last decade that really enabled them to put together this therapy so quickly. What they did with the COVID vaccine is prove that their technology platform works. And by, by building uh, up front this, this platform, they're really creating um, something that can be used at scale to make many other therapeutics. So several really cool things have happened. One, they proved mRNA can work in human beings, and it's very safe and effective. And now that the world accepts mRNA as a viable course of treatment, there are many other therapies, at least 15 other drugs that Moderna alone has in the pipeline, in, in clinical trials as we speak, that they've been working on for a while. So now that we've got one mRNA through, it's only a matter of time before a lot of the other ones come. And Moderna is very well positioned for that trend. I want to shift gears a little bit here and think about virtual doctor visits. In a post-pandemic world, am I used to seeing my doctor over Zoom or do I want a physical checkout? I mean, it's really up to the consumer. I think we're seeing more and more that the millennials and younger are open to continuing to stay at the office or, or stay at home wherever they are and just have that doctor visit uh, online or on the phone wherever possible. Um, you're still going to have some needs where you're going to need to go in person. But, uh, but by and large, a lot of other um, uh, indications and, and specialties in the healthcare world have taken place virtually. And I think that that's here to stay and it's only going to grow. For example, orthopedic, um, physical therapy remote, uh, OBGYN appointments can even be remote. So, Nina, is there any concern in the biotech or pharma industry that, you know, this big focus we've had over the last 18 months on COVID has maybe taken resources away from some other areas that maybe now have been underinvested or lagging a little bit? How, how do investors think about that? If, if 
not necessarily a concern. It's well, all right. If you think about healthcare in general, it's a concern. Think about the number of people who didn't go in for a cancer screen, like colonoscopy, last year because of the pandemic. So there is definitely a backlog of um, undetected illnesses, if you will, that are are sort of waiting to be discovered and then treated. So it's it is a medical concern uh, for society and the world. But in terms of investors. If you think about the number of purchases that didn't take place last year because resources were reallocated toward dealing with the pandemic, those budgets are back and now well positioned to buy things like uh, the robotics, if you will, or the the lab automation instrumentation um, that people were waiting to buy before the pandemic. So those budgets are coming back and you're seeing that um, a lot of these companies in surgical robotics and lab automation um, are, are, are at numbers or above. And we're going to see now in Q2 earnings, we're waiting to see how utilization is, is climbing back of, up to pre-pandemic levels. And uh, we should expect to see some of those non-COVID-related capital purchases back. Interesting, interesting. Nina Decca, thank you so much for joining us. Senior Research Analyst at RoboGlobal, getting a sense of kind of these uh, healthcare stocks, healthcare and biotech stocks investing. Again, the focus has been so much on this pandemic over the last 18 months, and uh, it'll be interesting to see with these you know, quarters earnings how these companies, to the extent that they were really involved with the COVID uh, vaccines, kind of pivot a little bit back to perhaps some of their other uh, business lines as well in terms of investment. Talk about SPACs right now, uh, Tom Keen's favorite topic. Uh, hopefully he's listening in. Uh, you know, boy, you think about the SPAC special purpose acquisition companies, r- just really the rage in terms of new issuance late 2020 into 2021. They seem to have faded a little bit. Some folks are questioning, was that kind of a mark of a top of the market? Uh, is a little bit passe? Where are we in this SPAC cycle? Uh, fortunately, we have our next guest who can help us think about that. Mark Yusko, he's a chief executive officer and chief investment officer for Morgan Creek Capital Management. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense. Just let's step back 30,000 feet. What is your view of the SPAC market right now? No, I appreciate you having me on. And, and look, I... I think we are are really just getting warmed up in the sense of, you know, what SPACs are. And I think the part of the problem is there's just a lot of confusion uh, about SPACs. And basically, SPACs are a process of going public. Uh, a SPAC is raised as a blank check company. It has an IPO. And then it, it basically sits in cash and treasuries during a period until the sponsor finds a company to merge with. The company then merges with the SPAC and uh, then becomes a post-merger combined entity. And yet people conflate the terms. They talk about, you know, Virgin Galactic or DraftKings as a SPAC. No, those are companies. They, they were SPACs. IPOE was a SPAC and, and uh, Diamond Eagle Acquisition Corp. was a SPAC. But once you merge with the company, you're an operating company going forward. And you, know, you said something interesting when we first started about SPACs fading. Well, they faded for about six weeks in the sense of, you know, last year, about 50% of IPOs were SPACs. Um, And if you look in terms of dollars, it was actually more than that because the average SPAC is a little bit bigger than the average IPO. And there's some information content in there. The larger it is, the higher the quality. If you look at the first quarter, it was kind of crazy, about 75% Mm -hmm. of all IPOs were SPACs. That was too fast. 
So the SEC kind of capped the break, said they were going to threaten to change the accounting rules on warrants. Actually didn't do it, but that created a six-week period where SPACs fell to about 20% of new issuance uh, for IPOs. Now they're right back to 50%. I think that's where we're going to equilibrate at about 50%. Yeah. Um, you know, let me interject quickly because you mentioned the SEC, and I am curious how you respond to critics of SPACs who say, even as recently as today, we're getting headlines about SEC investigations into potential conflicts of interest. Now they're looking at bank fee conflicts. How much of that is a headwind? I think, look, um, the IPO process has been, uh, I'll say, broken for a long time. Uh, it's a bad process. It, it hurts the average investor. Uh, it's basically a walled garden for the wealthy clients of, of the underwriters. And the fact that you know one out of every two high-growth innovative companies now is migrating to a SPAC merger as opposed to an IPO, that clearly potentially hurts the incumbents. And so those incumbents have very strong lobbying groups, and perhaps they, they put some pressure on, on the SEC to try to I said, tap the brakes. I think, I think it's a lot of bluster. You know, the, the threat on changing the accounting rules on warrants was a distinction without a difference. It had no cash impact. And, you know, look, incumbents always fear disruption. And they will always use FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt to try to slow that disruption. But at the end of the day, if it's a better technology, uh, and Bill Gurley writes about this in his blog about why it is a better way of going public for a high-growth innovative company. And I think the, the data shows that. So, Mark, you know what? When I grew up with SPACs, it was typically backed by a really well-known and seasoned investor, uh, John Malone, for example, someone like that who has a track record. But now SPACs are with, you know, A-Rod and celebrities and things like that. Is that not the mark of, hey, we've gone too far with this thing? Such a great point. Such a great point. You know, if you go back to the early days of SPACs, you know, the SPAC industry was like the NIT tournament of fundraising. Yep. Nobody wants to go to the NIT tournament. They all want to be the NCAA. And so for 20-plus years, it was a horrible place to try to raise money, and the returns showed. So up until 2015, the returns in SPACs were terrible. About 70% of SPACs raised that year had to liquidate. Uh, they changed the rules in 2015, and by 2020, we were down to no yep. uh, SPACs actually had to liquidate. They actually found real businesses to buy. Well, why is that? Well, to your point, we started to see real operators and real businesses yep. uh, be, be involved in the SPAC market. Now, I did a presentation called What's So Special About Special Purpose Acquisition Companies late last year, and in it, I had a picture. On the left-hand side was Chamath and Right, uh, Richard Branson. Yep, and on the right was a former uh, athlete, yep. a yep. former um, writer, author, and right. a former Goldman Sachs operating executive. And I said, "I'll back the guys on the left." Right, exactly can. right. Hey, Mark, we're gonna have to right? we're gonna have to leave it there just because of time. But uh, we'll have you back. And we'll talk more specs. Mark Yusko, Chief Executive Officer of Morgan Creek Capital Management. Looking at Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, they both both reported some pretty solid results. Uh, this quarter, both stocks are down a little bit today, about the one and a half to two and a half percent. Let's get the skinny on those names, plus what to expect later on in the week as these big banks report earnings. 
As always, we turn to our in-house expert, Allison Williams, senior industry analyst uh, covering all things in the banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. Bloomberg Intelligence is Bloomberg's in-house investment research department. Over 300 analysts are covering 1,300 stocks, 130 industries just all over the place. Um, Allison, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, what are your key takeaways from J.P. Morgan and Goldman? To me, it seemed like the bankers really came through. The bankers did really come through, and especially M&A, which is something that we expected to be strong, um, exceeded the consensus estimates, and we really think that there's legs to that revenue stream in the second half, as well as um, the adjacent stream of sort of uh, financing businesses and the like. Um, but that's a smaller part of the business, especially for someone like J.P. Morgan. And uh, then I guess the negative is, which is which is something that's been building for a while, is just sort of the disappointing net interest income trends, and that's really tied to loan growth. I would say that for J.P. Morgan today, the, the newer, I, I guess, negative is the fact that they upped their expense guidance again. So $71 billion. We started off the year at about $68 billion in January. That's been ticking up. Now, part of that is due to better business-related volumes. So it takes money to, to make money. Mm -hmm. We view that a little bit more favorably than than perhaps what we're seeing at Citigroup. Um, but still, you know, you, everyone would like to see more revenue and less costs. You know, it's interesting as we think about the bankers coming through, it was just Daniel Pinto, I believe, within the last two weeks saying that the trading slump is over. Do you buy that or are we thinking that a trading slump could be here to stay? Well, I think that I think um, the key point that um, Pinto is referring to, which we agree with, is the fact that um, we're not necessarily going to go back to the lows. So FIC revenue is down, you know, over 40 percent. It was down like 40, about 45 percent at the two banks, but still higher than it was in 2019. So we're off, you know, sort of the really robust uh, quarter from a year ago, but still stronger. So um, what what makes us sort of agree with the fact that, you know, revenue might not go back to some of those lo lower levels that we saw in, in 2014 to 2019? Um, you know, I guess I guess there's there's a few things, but you know, one of the key things that that we're seeing right now is obviously the huge monetary support support for the moment, po policy support for the moment. The longer term trend is obviously GDP and capital markets development, and one of the things that we've seen at the banks and asset managers alike in recent quarters is the build out in China. That's something where um, Goldman has been really focusing, and sort of that revenue stream coming on board helping the banks. Allison, this is just a question based upon my, I used to spend a long time working at these investment banks like you did. Did they say anything about coming back to work? What's going on there? Because it's, it's a big issue. There's definitely a focus on having client-facing um, bankers and traders back in the office. Um, and so that's something that we've been seeing um, over the last several weeks in terms of, of getting people back in the office. And, you know, we hear a lot about certain banks using that as a differentiator um, in terms of giving more flexibility. Um, obviously, at the end of the day, you know that competition is tough in, this, in these businesses, especially if you're going to see normalizing revenue. And so I think, it, you know, it's all fine until you know, someone loses out on a deal. 
Um, and so I think that um, to the extent that people are in the offices and are out seeing clients, um, they want to be doing their, their best for market share. And by the way, that's, that's the other thing that will be interesting. As the full quarter shakes out, we did see equities trading better than expected by both uh, competitors today. Um, prime brokerage, record balances uh, we heard from both companies. Now hedge funds we expect as an industry have record balances, but we're also curious to see how things are shaking out in the wake of Credit Suisse's pullback. Um, Archegos was the story last quarter. Um, Credit Suisse has had sort of a, a more dramatic mm-hmm. pullback in their business, whereas you know Morgan Stanley and UBS, UBS which also took hits, um, you know, have also made changes, but a little bit more at the margin. Just about 45 seconds to a minute here, Allison. What does this mean for any indication of what we can get for tomorrow as we get further bank earnings reporting? So two things for tomorrow. Well, three. One is will net interest income uh, guidance come down, especially for Bank America and Wells Fargo? Um, Also, Citigroup, but they have sort of already taken their expectations down a bit. Um, The second uh, is costs. As I said, we saw higher business-related costs for um, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup's full-year guidance is going to be key to watch there. And then third, what's happening in equities? Are these banks uh, gaining some share in the prime business? All right, Allison, as always, great uh, follow-up there. And we'll be chatting with you, I'm sure, later in the week as these banks uh, continue to roll out their numbers. Allison Williams, she's a senior uh, banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from the uh, swamps of Jersey, I guess. Um, so again, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, some solid numbers here today. Uh, one of the issues that I, I found interesting from Allison's comments was the lack of loan or disappointing or lower than expected loan growth. And that's a theme that we've heard uh, from some of the banks. And perhaps that's a reflection of uh, there's so much cash in the marketplace, fiscal stimulus, uh, easy uh, monetary policy, mm-hmm. uh, that the overall demand uh, for some of these uh, loan products, not quite where they'd like to see it. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Wolfgang Koster joins us. He's a senior strategist for Kyriba. Um, get his thoughts on the currency business. You know, during the pandemic, the currencies, uh, the U.S. dollar has been fairly steady, but not so much with some other currencies. Wolfgang, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you guys are out with a currency impact report. What are the big takeaways from this report as to what currency volatility has cost companies? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, so this currency impact report looks at 1,200 companies around the world, focused 400 in Europe and 800 in North America. And what we accumulate there is the facts, so the quantitative facts of who has been hurt or who has gained from currency impacts. And then we actually validate that against what the standards in the industry are, what is acceptable as a currency impact and what is not uh, acceptable. And what we've seen this quarter is that we've got just under $10 billion of losses that have been pointed out by the corporations, if you accumulate them all, around uh, the world. This really is a significant increase even over last quarter, and we expect that to actually continue for a couple of reasons. One, you're obviously seeing uh, the economy not only in the United States but uh, elsewhere heating up, and so you're going to start seeing more flow of supply chains of uh, products going across. The other thing is with that, you're actually seeing a material increase in volatility um, impacting corporations that do not manage currency risk 
properly and to the fact um, have uh, continue to get hurt. And those are typically surprises that the uh, investor community punishes. You know, it's been interesting coming into this year, the overwhelming call was for further dollar weakness. And yet since June, you've actually seen some dollar strength as of late. What does that mean for hedging as it relates to the dollar? Yeah, it's a great, great point. And uh, one never knows where the dollar is going. Only one thing is sure. When there's no volatility, there will be volatility, whatever the direction is. Now, when you're thinking about this, and this is a little bit counterintuitive for most, is when the dollar goes up, that means that whatever revenues you have abroad are actually worth less to you. And unless you manage that risk by hedging it or managing it in other ways, um, you will have negative impacts with a strong dollar. That's typically counterintuitive. Everybody thinks, well, dollar is going is strong, therefore things are great, things are going well. Well, for corporations who don't manage that, that's actually typically not good news. And to put that in further uh, in kind of further context, the average S&P 500 company has over 50% of its revenues from outside the United States. So that means the average S&P 500 company, if they do nothing, have 50% of their revenues at risk due to currency volatility. All right, Wolfgang, when I see a number like $9.5 billion lost due to a currency volatility, is my takeaway that corporations are not very good at hedging? Uh, some are and some aren't, but the ones that have to disclose it are not, is the fact of the matter. So the $9.5 billion that disclosed it are not very good at managing their risk. So that takeaway is absolutely correct. Now, we at Cariba Tribe help companies actually look at that and manage that properly and really not manage it, but understand that exposure. And so we hope that uh, less and less corporations get impacted. But when you think about uh, one quarter, nine and a half billion dollars lost in and stock in the in the revenues, et cetera, that, that's those are you could equate that to jobs, right? That's a lot of jobs that people can't really afford to because they're not managing their currency risk to the levels they can. And to put a benchmark at this, because you're asking which direction that goes to, the benchmark is if a company has more than one cent earnings per share impacted by foreign exchange, that's material and too much. There are lots of companies. We saw Pepsi coming out earlier today. No impacts. There's lots of professional companies of all sizes, by the way. It isn't just the larger the company, the better they are at managing it. But you can have small companies like a Hubble, for example, that does a great job at managing their currency risk and have no impact. So they are what we refer to as currency agnostic. They manage their financial affairs in such a way that the currencies do not really impact their results. That's very doable. And by the way, not very expensive today. Hey, Wolfgang, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Wolfgang Coaster, Senior Strategist for Kyriba. They have their quarterly uh, Kyriba's Currency Impact Report that came out this morning. And again, the key takeaway, corporations lost $9.5 billion due to increased currency volatility in the past quarter. Seems like a big number to me, Taylor. Yeah, it certainly <laughs> does. I was taking a look at the, we have a great chart on the terminal with the bond volatility index, the equity, so the move, the VIX, and yep. then the currency, the G7. And it's actually been bond vol that's been spiking lately. You've actually had equity and FX vol falling. How much, of course, is that due to the Federal Reserve yep. playing a pretty heavy hand in these markets? Paul? Yeah, absolutely. Looking at the VIX right here at, you know, 16 level, you know, I, you know, it, 
had been pre-pandemic in that 12, 13, 14 level. But as we remember, it spiked up to 80 uh, during the beginning of that pandemic. Here we are back down to a more normalized level. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.